off, off. There we go. Last Sunday was an exciting Sunday here at this church. And the reason it was exciting is because the Word of God tells me something kind of interesting. It tells me that prayer is eternal. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. But there is not like an expiration date on prayer. There isn't a date that all of a sudden it passes away. Even the prayers of saints who have gone before us are eternal. And God hears them. And last Sunday, God answered Lynn Malerba's prayer. And at the end of the service, her mother accepted Jesus Christ as her personal Savior. And that's a miracle on so many different levels. And so there's other miracles. And I just want you to know that God hasn't put some kind of... Your, your, your prayers are not a Twinkie that have a shelf life. Even though it's long. Your prayers are eternal things that God hears and He wants to answer. Lynn prayed for her business partner that helped her put together web pages and that person started coming to church here and in December they got saved. That was their Christmas present to themselves. Got saved on Christmas Eve. And last Sunday, Lynn's mother came to know Jesus Christ. And so there is nothing that is impossible for God. That's the God we serve. So I want you to think about the prayers that you're praying right now. Okay? Some of them that you think that God has just said, oh, that was prayer was only good for six months. You know? There's a deadline on that. There is not. The prayers of the saints are eternal. There's this beautiful picture in the book of Revelation that talks about the prayers of the saints being a part of the great offering and sacrifice to God. So I don't know what you're praying praying about. I don't know if you feel like your prayers are just going to the ceiling and falling down. I want to tell you that they are eternal. Because I can't imagine how many days Lynn thought that this could never happen. But Linda was doing a happy dance last Sunday. And she was punching Jesus in the arm and going, that's amazing. You know, isn't that incredible? Well, that's extra. That's, you don't have to pay for that. I can't make that stuff up. It isn't. Praise the God who's holy and mighty and hears the prayers of his saints and loves the souls of all people. Praise to him. Amen. Amen. <laughs> So we're in an exciting place in the life of Genesis. We're in one of those places that sometimes, i got to be honest, you and I, we just kind of, well, we don't really read them. It's a genealogy. You know, you, there's just a point in Scripture where so-and-so had a kid, and then they had, you know, and we just stop reading it. And the reason we stop reading it is because it doesn't seem like it makes any sense. But there are times that God is doing something and He takes His time in doing that. And instead of it happening tomorrow, He works it out over a series of generations. You know, I think of the fact that God wanted to save a lot of people. And so He had a man become a Sunday school teacher and that man became the Sunday school teacher at D.L. Moody. And he led D.L. Moody to the Lord. 
And D.L. Moody led many people to the Lord. But when you read the genealogy of all the people that were before the Sunday school person, it might be kind of boring. So we have to give these kinds of things context. And we're studying the life of Christ. We're studying in the book of Genesis right now. And we're studying the beginnings of history, the epochs of time. And there have been certain people that all of a sudden, in the middle of a genealogy, there's just more information given about them. Most genealogies in the Bible only are concerned with the older son. And it says, and they had sons and daughters, blah, 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 blah. It's kind of how it goes. You know, have you ever felt like you weren't the one that everybody talks about? Have you ever had that experience? Like you're the one that people can go to and ask questions about somebody else? Have you ever felt like that person? You know? Nancy feels like that person sometimes. How's Jim? What about me? How am I? (laughs) You know? You know? Well, that's what it's kind of like to be a secondborn or that kind of thing. But then there are certain times in Scripture where all of a sudden they break out and they tell you about more than the first son. Of course, they did that with Adam. He had three sons. They tell you about them. Noah had three sons. We learn about them. In fact, knowing about them is really kind of the tie into what's next here. So I'm going to take us back to Genesis chapter 9, verses 26 and 27. This is Noah's life. This is that horrible point where Noah's being human. Remember, he got drunk and he was naked and his sons reacted in different ways. And we've, we've used this passage as a church to think about how should we react to seeing other people's sin exposed. And we've talked about the beauty, and I've been so proud of you as a congregation because you've learned to be blanket holders and there's been sin exposed at times. But we have just backed up and covered that. But there were consequences to the actions of those three sons, and you see them here in chapter 9, verse 26 and 27. Shem and Japheth were the ones that held the blanket. Canaan who was the son of Ham, was the one that laughed. And this is what happened. This is what Noah said. He said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant, and may God enlarge on Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Okay, well, you're like, well, this is interesting, okay? But why is this important? Well, all of a sudden we're going to be hearing about the story of Shem. Because this is the line that all of a sudden, God of the three, this is the one that is going to somehow be a part of a blessing, something that God's going to do. And so as we read again in chapter 11, we hear Shem's story. Every time they're going to tell the story of somebody or about the, the, the prodigy of someone or the children that were going to come, they call it the generations of. And so here we have, once again, this term that's used maybe 10 or 11 times in the book of Genesis. It says this, These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpashad two years after the flood. And Shem lived and he fathered Arpashad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. Okay? Next verse. Arpashad lived 35 years and he had Shelah. And Arpashad lived after he had fathered Shelah 403 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Okay, you're going to see a pattern here, okay? 
Now Shelah lived 30 years, and he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived a, after he had fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Pegleg. And Eber lived after him. He had fathered Peleg 430 years, and he had other sons and daughters. I don't know if he's the first pirate in the Bible, but he might be. Okay. Next generation. When Peleg was 30 years old, he fathered Ru. And Peleg lived after he had fathered Ru 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Ru had lived 32 years, he fathered Surag. And Ru lived after he, he had fathered Surag 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Surag had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Surag lived after him, he had fathered Nahor 200 years and he had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he had fathered Terah to 119 years and had other sons and daughters. Now you see a shift in the story. Because it says this. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. All of a sudden, instead of just naming one person, they named three people. And all of a sudden, we are going through a shift And all of a sudden, there's a reason why. It's going to be interesting. And we could get into the Bible trivia, and I'm going to try to be careful to give you more than just an opportunity to win at Trivial Pursuit. But there's a reason why all three brothers are named. And we'll begin seeing it as we hear the story of the generations of Terah, which start in verse 27. You're going to have to help me out. There we go. Now, these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abraham, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Are you starting to hear names that maybe you've heard somewhere before? It's interesting because all of a sudden, the names here will take up the next 15 to 16 chapters of the book of Genesis. Instead of going at this 30,000-foot level, all of a sudden we're going to start talking about Terah's family. In fact, if you read on, it says this, Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. You know, we just talked a little bit ago about how hard it would be to lose a child. So here was Terah, he was this father, and he had three sons, and his baby, his baby boy, dies. His son. Well, he's not a baby boy because he has a son whose name is Lot. So what happens next? And Abraham and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Malak, Melka the daughter of Haran, the father of Melchah, and Iskar, Iska. Now let's think about this. Now who's Haran? Haran happens to be Nahor's brother. Now I know this is kind of weird because we don't live in this world anymore where we marry relatives like this. Well, they do in certain parts of the United States, but as a whole, that's not where we live, okay? But all of a sudden, you have Nahor takes Milcah as his wife, 
And all of a sudden, this is interesting. If you notice, did it even mention that any of them had wives before? Did you notice that they just talked about dad, oldest son, dad, oldest son, dad, oldest son. All of a sudden, we're getting all this detail. And it goes on and tells us this. Now, Sarai was barren, and she had no children. Okay? I feel sorry for women in the Bible because this is one of the main reasons they're, they're mentioned. Over and over again, you're going to find these pictures in Scripture of, of some women that struggled in this area. The mother of Samuel, Hannah, is another example. There are other examples as well. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran. Okay, so now all of a sudden, Terah is taking on this role. Not that anybody in this room would ever understand this role, but Terah is taking on the role of taking care of his grandson. And so they leave. And, he, and it says, Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarah his daughter-in-law, his, his son Abram's wife, and they went together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. Now, this is interesting. Uh, you know, I'm speculating here, but I'm wondering why all of a sudden Terah decided to go to Canaan. I'm wondering why. Because it says that this happened after the death of his son. And I know that some of you have gone through the process of losing somebody very close. And the reality is that when you lose somebody very close, everything in the environment somehow reminds you of that person. That's a reality that you deal with. You are just made overly aware of that. And I don't know why Tara decided to leave Ur, but maybe it was just too hard to be there anymore. This is Jim. This isn't the Word of God giving something specific. But he heads and he decides he's going to go to a place called Canaan. As you read on the story, it says, but when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of, of, Hera, of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now it's interesting that the place that they settled was named the same as his son. Uh, that will come up again in a minute, but it's just kind of interesting. If they were planning on going all the way to Canaan, but they stopped. It says here, but when they came to Haran, they settled there. They had planned on going somewhere else, but they only went part of the way to Canaan, and they settled in a place called Haran. And all of a sudden you have this blurb and this life that is given more attention. And it's interesting because all of a sudden what you're going to find in chapters 12, I think for the next 15 chapters, that they spend a lot of time talking about one of Tara's sons. In chapter 12, in chapter 12, Verse 1, it says this. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So all of a sudden now, God enters into the stage again. And God speaks specifically to this man named Abram. And he says, I want you to do something. I want you to leave where you're from, 
which is Haran, which seems to be named after your brother, which is where your family has lived and where your family has settled. And I want you to go somewhere else. And then God does something pretty amazing. God does this in verse 2 of that. He says, I will make you a great nation. He says to Abram, he says, I am going to make you a great nation. Not only does he say, well, I will make you a great nation, but he says, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. You see, he probably was living in a, in a place named after his brother. I'm, I'm guessing that his father grew in enough influence so that he became kind of one of the leaders there. And he says, and they said, you know, we don't really have a good name for our town. Well, I would like to name it in memory of my son. So Abram had been spending his life living in the memorial to his brother. You know, death is a horrible thing. And sometimes we get stuck in it. And the only way we can think that it can have life anymore is if somehow we name something in memory of that person hardest funeral I ever did was the very first funeral I did. It was for a nine-year-old girl who died of a brain aneurysm. There would have been no way they would have known, and the family took it incredibly hard. And the grandfather worked, and there was a street in the park named after her. He was just trying to hold on to something. Family was deeply changed by that death. So all of a sudden, God looks at Abram and he says, I'm going to make your name great. You know, Abram probably was the one going, oh, Abram, Abram, aren't you Terah's son? Yeah, oh, yeah. Where we live was named after your brother, wasn't it? And all of a sudden, there's this change that's going on. So he said he's going to give Abram a great name. He also says, and I will bless those who bless you, and he who dishonors you I will curse. Which is an incredible promise. He says, look, I'm going to take you somewhere where you've never been before, but I want you to know I'm going to take care of you. If you bless somebody, I will bless them. But if anybody messes with you, I will curse them. I'm, I'm offering you my protection you know, it's, it's hard to go to a new place. It is. Sometimes the reason we're where we're at is because it's too hard to go somewhere else. You know? I lived in Indiana in the county that had the highest unemployment in the whole state. And the longer I lived there, I realized the main reason that number was high is that nobody would move away to get a job. Because it was just too hard to move away. I talked to many people who said, you see that house over there across the street? That's my grandfather's home. When this home became available, I, I just wanted to be near the homestead. And yet, God is speaking to Abram and he's saying something really cool. He's saying, I'm going to be with you where you go and I'm going to take care of you where you go. 
You see, you've got to understand that this is, this is a, an earlier time where God is just revealing Himself to people. We know this now, don't we? We know that no matter where we go or what we do, God is there. But He is making this problem pro- promise to Abram. In the end of that verse, He says this, And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, you have to remember that just one chapter ago, we had a listing of 70 children that were from the line of Noah, right? That became all the nations. And he is saying to Abram, every nation will be blessed because of you. Wow. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? There's a small problem, though. Here's the small problem that we have to overcome. Now, Sarah was barren, and she had no children. So here God is talking to this man who's been married long enough that they realize that there's something wrong in the plumbing, and it doesn't look like we're going to have kids. And all of a sudden, God steps in, and he says to them, Hey, I'm going to make you a great nation. Well, that will be interesting. We don't even have one kid. Hey, I'm going to make you a great name. Well, usually the guys that didn't have any kids didn't get to be in the little genealogy things, you know? Because the genealogy things always said, and they had sons and daughters. Huh. There's an obstacle here. How is God going to overcome this obstacle? How is God going to do this thing? How are these four promises that God said, I will do these four things, how is that going to happen when I don't have any logical way that it would happen? God loves these kinds of moments. He does this in all of our lives all the time. He calls us to do things that don't make any sense at all because he knows what he can do in those. God loves things that are impossible because what does it say in God's words? Nothing is impossible for God. But on a practical level, he might have said this. Hey, look, I have this brother. His name is Nahor. Nahor has kids. Are you talking to the right brother? You know, what exactly are you doing? And so here's what Abraham does in response to that. Oh, there's one more thing. Now God said to Abram, go from your country, your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. See, the first thing is he didn't have the means. The second of all thing, it was going to be really uncomfortable. Change is hard. When I used to teach kids about dating, I said sometimes one of the reasons you won't break up with someone, even though you know you're supposed to, is it's just too much work and it's easier just to stay in a bad relationship. It's, it's just easier. Because it's just too much work. Have you ever thought about that? Once in a while, Nancy and I, uh, when we lived in a house, we'd talk about moving to another house. And, and, and in my mind, I was just like, Nancy, I can fix it up. It's just easier to stay here than to start all over. What do you think? Yeah. Change is hard. 
when we had the cousin reunion when I was home in North Dakota just a couple months ago, I realized that I had broken the family pack because so many of them still live within 30 minutes of the homestead. And my mom was like, you never come over Christmas. I know. I'm a pastor. I'll come home other times a year, but all my friends have their friends. You know, it's like, well, no, I broke the pack. I messed up the cousin reunion. And in a family like his, where his father took him and Lot and this false family group to start over again into a place that ends up being named after his brother, leaving was probably not a very easy thing. And sometimes because of one of these obstacles, it's just easier to stay in Ur, isn't it? Sometimes when God lays out something that he wants to do and and how he wants to do it, and it doesn't make any sense to us, we go, I choose Ur. Because that's safer and more comfortable. Why in the world? Did you hear what God said? God says, I want you to go to a place. What did he say? Let's go back to that. That was interesting. What did God say to him? He said... Um, I want you to go to a, now go from your country and your kindred and your father to the place that I will show you. He's not even telling him where he's going to go. How many of you like that? Some of us are kind of spontaneous. So I can get in the car and I say, come on, Nancy, where are we going to, let's just go for a drive. And she'll go, where are we going? For a drive? Well, where are we going to end up? Where the car goes. You know, because she likes to plan spontaneity. That's kind of where she comes from. This is a big thing that God is asking you. He says, I will do these four things for you, but the four things that I will do for you look impossible. So what does Abraham do? If we jump all the way back to where we were at in these slides, it says that Abraham goes anyway. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him, and Abraham was 75 years old when he departed Haran. Now, this is amazing to me. You know, my mother-in-law occasionally says, I want to live with you guys. But it's cold there. And I'm 88. And I live in Florida. I'm going to move you. Yeah, and that's kind of what we think, you know. He should be kind of set in his ways. But he is 75 years old, and he is departing. Now let's think about this. When you took a look at the age of what age people were having children in the line before this, they were all about age what? 30. So he's 45 years past the due date, right? Do you think he's kind of aware of this? But he still feels a responsibility. So since his father took care of Lot, he takes Lot with him. And he takes his wife with him, and they leave Haran. And it says that this is what they did. And, and Abram took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. Isn't that interesting? 
you know, Scripture doesn't say this, but this is just me and my vivid imagination again. I've always wondered if Abraham received the same promise that his father had, but Terah never made it to Canaan. Isn't that interesting? Instead of making it to Canaan, what did he do? He settled on something else, right? Instead of doing exactly what God asked. And I've met people like that. Have you ever met anybody that said, I always felt like I was supposed to da-da-da-da-da. But, you know, life happened, and this happened, and that happened, and I just kind of settled on this. And I guess, Pastor, that will never happen. Because I settled on this. So they go to the land of Canaan, and when they get there, they came to the land of Canaan, and, and Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, which is just about in the middle of Canaan, or in the middle of Israel. That's where Shechem is. At the time, the Canaanites were in the lands. Now, the Canaanites are interesting. The Canaanites were kind of distant relatives of them. And if you go back to 926, what did it say? It said there would come a time when Shem would rule over Canaan, right? Hmm. And all of a sudden, God brought him into this land. But he's a foreigner this land it says that he continued to travel then the lord appeared to abram and said to your offspring i will give this land so he built an altar to the lord who had appeared to him now i've been to israel and i'm not sure why it's the promised land i'd pick california or maybe florida because there's a lot of big rocks and a lot of desert there Okay, And they're not mountains like we have, or they're not like the Blue Ridge Mountains, or they're not like the Rocky Mountains. They remind me of a part of North Dakota nobody lives in, called the Badlands. And there's a reason they're called the Badlands, because they're bad. You can't even raise cattle there. And that's kind of what Israel looks like to me. And so I think there were good things going on there, but he's passing through and he's, and, he's, and he's not going with a small group because it's him and his whole entourage and all the animals he owns and all the animals that Lot owns and all their stuff. You know, how many of you go on vacation and say, we need to bring the moving truck so we can take all of the stuff we own on vacation with us? We don't do that, do we? We don't say that. We say, what is the minimum I need? We say things like, maybe you don't say them, but I say, people aren't going to see me every day. So I can use a little Febreze and wear that shirt a couple times. I don't need to take as much stuff. There are some non-negotiables. We won't get into that. But, you know, there are certain things that we just, we try to take the minimum. But here he is dragging all this stuff to this land that he's supposed to go to, and there isn't a sign somewhere that says, Welcome to Canaan. So glad you're here. The welcome wagon is not showing up. And so I'm thinking at some point he's thinking, What's going on here? And all of a sudden in that, God affirms the impossible thing that he's going to do. God doesn't say, Here's a house for you. You know? Here's a place. They were just wanting to figure out what to call it. 
and you showed up, and now they're going to call it Abraham's city. No, it didn't go like that. In fact, even after God says this, they tend to wander around. From there he moved to the hill country east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel at the west and Ai at the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. You know, I think there was part of the reason he was calling onto the name of the Lord was because it was a big question mark. Okay, God, I've, I've done what you've asked me to do. I've gone where you've asked me to go. And it's just not really coming together yet. What are you doing? You see, God called Abraham to live an unsettled life so that he could do something impossible. And our very natures, your and my natures, do not like living unsettled. We don't like it. We, we try to avoid it. We, we like to live settled lives. We like to have a sense of place. We like to settle in. You know, if you're a wife, I know that Nancy goes through this nesting thing where you, you make it your own. They spent all day yesterday um, hanging out in Tupper, doing little doodah stuff all over Grace's apartment to make it her home so she can feel just a little more settled. The other day, Nancy said to me, she was, we were going over there and she says, she needs some little things. You know, I said, like what? Well, like my swan. Nancy has a swan in the living room. She likes her swan. It's kind of a joke. She say occasionally, I need some new tchotchke. Okay, well, what exactly do you need? Well, I don't want it to be as small as a pineapple, but it should be smaller than the swan. And so I will go out looking for the elusive bigger than a pineapple, smaller than a swan thing. And so that's what I said to Nancy when she said, I want to get her these things so she can feel more settled. I said, is it bigger than a pineapple and smaller than a swan? She said, yeah. There's, she just needs little things on her end tables and that. We want to be settled. We don't like life being unsettled. But it is, isn't it? Have you ever felt like you've figured out life only to find out that you didn't figure it out Right? You know, it's like the guy who says, I've been climbing the ladder only to realize that it's up against the wrong building. There is a sense that Abraham, in the call of God, and in the impossible things that God is asking, is living a different life than his father, Terah, who decided to settle and not make it all the way to Canaan. And Abraham journeyed on, still going on, to Negev, and if you read verse 10, it says that all of a sudden there was a famine in the land. So all of a sudden he wasn't even in Canaan. He had to go to Egypt. And we'll read more about that next week. But there was an unsettled life that he was called to live. Here's the reality. Abraham's faith is talked about in Hebrews. It says, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going, and by faith he went to live in a land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, 
heirs with him of the same promise. And if you read the rest of the book of Genesis, you find out that the promise is worked out in guides that are living in unsettled life. But see, here's, here's the thing that I want you to hear today. Because it would be really easy to take this whole thing and think about it in third person. But when Jesus Christ was getting ready to ascend into heaven, He said this to His disciples. He said, <coughs> Go therefore into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Abraham wasn't the only one that was given the challenge to go. You and I have been given a challenge to go. This is called the Great Commandment. And it's tied to something else called the Great Commission. God called us to love the world Love the Lord with all our heart, soul, and mind, and to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And so God is calling us <coughs> to go. He's calling each one of us. We're to go and help make disciples. Last week, Lynn's mother came to the Lord, and we are responsible to not just see that she meets Jesus, but that she has a meaningful, growing relationship with Jesus. She's supposed to be a disciple of Jesus. Instead of just a convert of Jesus. God has called each one of us to do that. He's called us to go and do this. And you know what? This is impossible. And there are obstacles to this, aren't there? It isn't natural. Is it natural for you to be a witness for Jesus Christ? I think it's hard. I meet some people. I, I know one guy. His name is Tommy. You guys have met Tommy before. Tommy can share the gospel with anybody, any day of the week. i got to kind of ramp up to it. But God has called us to go. But we have obstacles, don't we? Do you have obstacles? Are there reasons why you find it hard to go and be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Are you finding it hard to get to Canaan and all of a sudden... Heron looks just really attractive. How do you like the idea that this is not your home and that we're supposed to live an unsettled life? How does that feel? This is not our home. John tells us that Jesus is preparing a home for us. But this is not our home. This is camping with all of our stuff. That's what it is. And so God is calling each one of us to live an unsettled life in the same way that he called Abram to live that kind of a life. And we are fighting it. We want this to be our home. And we want everything about it to be settled. I know that some of you like to keep everything in order. You know me. I like to keep everything in order. I like my home to be in order. And then I goes upstairs to the boys' wing, and home is not in order. And I can get really upset. But then I have to remember that this is not my home. And that God has called us to go. 
And he promises in going that he will be with us in the same way he made that promise to Abraham. Isn't that the coolest thing? When he made that promise to Abraham, he didn't say, I want you to go to Canaan and I hope things work out for you. No, he says, I'm going to go with you. And those who bless, you bless, I will bless. And those who curse you, I, I will protect you. And I, I, will, I will be your protector. But God is calling us to go. But my question is, will you settle or will you keep going? God is calling us to go. Let's pray. Dear God, I I know that whenever you speak of a message about disciple-making and going, that immediately a lot of obstacles raise up. And immediately everybody says, that's impossible. Much like Abraham must have thought at times. When he walked those hundreds of miles here and there, we know that he wondered and had crises of faith. And I know that my brothers and sisters today maybe even struggling with a crisis of faith. But God, the greatest blessing that we can give anyone is to be your hands and feet that give them opportunity to be a part of your kingdom. And so God, help us to not settle and help us to keep going. I pray this in your name.